you know, we're not working with Kardashians. We're working with some of the most thoughtful, hardworking, intelligent, driven people that I know who are just desperate to make the world a better place for them, for their kids, for our kids. And they've built platforms around that and that those platforms, when you work with them in conjunction, have an unrivaled power to achieve those goals. That's something I'm convinced of over and over again as we do this work, that this is the, the most powerful messaging apparatus on the left, bar none. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Stuart Perlmutter. Stuart is the CEO of At Advocacy. At Advocacy is a firm that connects social media influencers to progressive campaigns and causes to help spread their messages. I really enjoyed the conversation with Stuart, learning more about his path to starting the firm, as well as more about the world of social media influencers and how they can cooperate to advance progressive goals. There's value here for a lot of folks that I hope listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Stuart about at advocacy. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Stuart, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name's Stuart Perlmutter. I'm the founder and CEO of At Advocacy. We're a influencer advocacy network of content creators who are working to make the world a better place with their platforms. I'm a Capitol Hill veteran of 17 years. I took some time off for about seven years and worked as a screenwriter in LA, only to return after the 2016 elections and realized that everything had changed as far as the media landscape. And that's really what led me to finding a different approach to disseminating information and messaging. I don't know when I do these interviews, whether people are very interested or totally interested in where people come from, their families, their education, but I am. So I continue to ask people, tell me a little bit about where you come from. Yeah, I think people would be fascinated by my background. <laughs> I'm actually from Louisville, Kentucky, um, which is where I now live as well. I grew up in a pretty progressive Democratic Jewish household. I went away to college and didn't come back for a long time. I worked... Wait, what college and what did you study? I, I studied theater at Syracuse University, which led me to writing, which led me to volunteering while visiting home for a long shot congressional candidate who was trying to flip a district that had been red for 10 years in Louisville, an underfunded candidate by the name of John Yarmouth, who could not afford a speechwriter or a press secretary. And so he hired me for about $400 a week. The first speech I ever wrote for him was to introduce then Senator Barack Obama at our local baseball stadium. And then he, he said, do you want to keep doing this? And I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever done. I was in a dugout with Barack Obama listening to, to him tell jokes. And, and that was pretty much the highlight of my, my campaign career. But he, we ended up winning. Uh, I went to D.C. with him and was, was communications director. That was the, the wave election where we flipped the house. I stayed there for about three years. I've been a communications advisor ever since but eventually went back to my writing roots until the election of Donald Trump. And I said, I, there are a lot of people who very admirably channel their frustration and rage and angst into creative pursuits. And 
I am just not one of those people. I need to channel my rage into action. And so that that's what brought me back. Do you remember any joke that Barack Obama told in that dugout? I, I don't even know that I heard him. I just, I was mesmerized by this captivating figure who was holding court. And, and I'm sure that I laughed on cue, but I don't think that I heard a word that he actually said. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, tell me about Yarmouth. Uh, as a person oh. and, work, and as a boss and so on. He, he was a, a, a wonderful person to get my, my feet wet in politics, a great mentor, uh, especially coming from a progressive guy who'd found himself in the comm space because he'd been a writer for years and he had a column that everybody and every progressive person in Louisville read every single week. So he was used to expressing himself in a really powerful way so I learned a lot of political writing from him. The other thing that has been kind of my guiding star ever since I started working for him is he was, he was a guy who was not ambitious about politics. Not that ambition is a bad thing. It helps people do things. It helps people accomplish things. But that was not why he was there. He was 59 when he was elected as a freshman Democrat, and he had no pursuits beyond that. He really disliked George Bush. He really disliked the direction that things were going. He thought because of the platform that he had in our community that he had a chance of flipping our district and helping flip the house, which we did. We got to work on healthcare, And he said from the very first day, if getting people affordable health care costs me this job, then it's time well spent. And that was the attitude that he took into everything. He had zero Fs to give from day one, and not everybody has that luxury, but it was great to be working in an office that was guided by nothing but a moral compass. Very rare, naturally, because politics is actually designed to have you be influenced by your constituency. And so finding that balance, I think, is tricky for an elected representative. And uh, it, it definitely is. Yeah. But people were really drawn to it. And as a result, we had like, there were a lot of Rand Paul John Yarmouth voters who just liked people who were authentic, even though, in my view, Rand Paul is not authentic. He just is better at bucking trends and sounding authentic. What did you learn about political writing from him? You said you learned some things. Uh, well, I learned a lot about grammar from him, actually. But, um, <laughs> I learned about the difference between saying comprised and composed we don't say comprised of. Um, and uh, I, I just learned about, I think I learned the, the major takeaway, and by the way, I'm stumbling over my words, you wouldn't think about this. Um, the major takeaway that I learned from him was less is, is more, that repetition is really powerful. And so he was always very focused on finding the one to three things that people could latch on to and repeat because, I mean, we saw this in the Affordable Care Act debate that Democrats had great reasons to get this bill passed, a hundred great reasons. And we wanted to say all of them. And so the public heard none of them. And all they heard was death panels because the Republicans were repeating that over and over again. And so uh, one of the frustrations being his communications person with a lot of people in, in leadership in the caucuses and is they would ask John for messaging guidance and we would provide it and we would provide three talking points and they would add it to a list. And, and that's not messaging. I, I don't think we've learned our lesson seven, 16 years later. Right now, Mike Johnson, at the time of this recording, was elected speaker yesterday, and I'm seeing laundry lists of why he's bad. And, and there's a really simple truth. Mike Johnson was unanimously elected by the Republican caucus to be the most extremist right-wing speaker since the Civil War. And I think that that is lost on people because what we're doing is we're rattling off positions that a lot of Republicans have. What was interesting is that we got a lesson in how to label him from Trump, who called him mm. MAGA, you know, put MAGA in front of his name. And that's probably all that's necessary on our side. That's a really good point, too. Yeah. If you don't like MAGA, I mean, if you like MAGA, you're probably going to like him anyway. And if you don't like it, then why not call him that? He's a Trumpist. He's MAGA. 
end of story. It's the same thing, extremist. I think that a lot of times uh, it's, I, I'm, I always want to find the best messaging points, but I think that a lot of times um, it's less important having the best points than having the right number of points and having repeatable points. Yeah. So I, you just got to say witch hunt or something like that. Apparently, <laughs> apparently it's a very compelling term. So I noticed that you label yourself as a part-time comms person. What were you doing in your mix of activities if that was what you were doing part-time? Oh, I, um, so I was comms director full-time and then some for three years, not including the campaign. And then I left, I worked as a screenwriter for a while in Hollywood and they kept me on as a part-time comms advisor, which was great. It was really great to continue to be able to have my, my hands in that. Do you have a screenplay or a movie that you contributed substantially to that you, that we should know about that you're proud of? I, have you heard the term development hell before? Yes. So there are a lot of screenwriters in LA, uh, although maybe not as much as they used to be, they've changed it, but there, there were a lot of screenwriters in LA who made a living, living in development hell, where you sell a script, you work with the studio, you work with a TV network, you work on it for a year, and it never sees the light of day. And when I got out there, I said, you know, and, and, and people who live in development hell, they complain all the time uh, about how much it sucks. I got out there and I was like, those guys are making money writing screenplays. If I, if I did that, you'd never hear me complain. You heard me complain. <laughs> you heard me complain a lot. It's not fun after a while. And if screenwriting is not fun, then there are better things to do with your time. I, I know someone who reads them for a production company or did, and there was the other end of that. You read a lot. You don't think they're quite right. And you have to pass on, on the 991 out of a thousand that you read or whatever the number is. So it's a tough business. It's yeah. tough business and they deserve to be paid. Oh. <laughs> so what happened? Okay. So is there something particular about the 2016 election that pulled you back in politics? Didn't go well. <laughs> uh, it did not go well at all. I obviously remained very political, but it was not my job. And, um, Really, I was devastated like everybody else. Uh, I still remember this. We were invited over for dinner on 11-9, the day after the election. We got there and the guy who invited us hadn't even finished. He, he only cooked the main course. He said, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to even make the side. So all we have is turkey. It was fine. We didn't care. We sat there and just were miserable. Even though the turkey actually was pretty good, if I recall. And honestly, that's kind of how I went through the next couple months. I was working on a project with the studio and I couldn't bring any kind of creativity or I couldn't focus. Yeah, by the time 2017 rolled around, I, I said I, I needed a change. And I, I started working with some friends who were in LA and were making names for themselves on the internet. I started a newsletter um, which was at the time called OD Action and developed a, a pretty large subscriber base for that of people who would wake up every morning and get their news and, and their actions from us. So the other impetus for, for the newsletter was as I was working with people who were making names for themselves on social media, and this is part of the impetus for the company as well, is people were getting a lot of uh, eyeballs on anti-Trump content and not doing anything with it. And it was a major source of frustration for me to have all that energy and not harness it to fight back against this, these evils that were being perpetrated from the top of our country. That really became the focus of, of first of the newsletter and then saying, if, if this pisses you off like it pisses us off, here, here are some ways that you can you fight back and some organizations that are doing really good work. My friend Brian Heller-Cohen was then making a name for himself 
on social media and and we started thinking of ideas for how to use his platform in a more productive way and, and i mean he's a he's a messaging genius and super smart super hardworking. and so that's really where ad advocacy started to come from is experiments that we would do and saying this is marvelous marvelously effective at getting people engaged and people really parroted his talking points and I, at, at the time i thought you know if i could find 10 more brian tyler cohen's there, there, aren't, there aren't any other brand telecoms, but there are some really, really powerful voices with big audiences. And I now have the privilege of working with them. How many people were reading your OD Action? We, we usually have um, around a quarter million subscribers uh, at any given time engaged with the newsletter. And um, I mean, that we, we got there, you know, in, during the Trump administration and have kind of maintained that level of engagement and subscribers. Was that email? Did you have that on a particular platform? It was on email, um, partnered with some people in social media to get subscribers in there. We shared their content and kind of an exchange. Yeah, it was just any newsletter that we sent out. We started with MailChimp and that grew MailChimp and kind of hopped from platform to platform. Did you ever charge for people to subscribe? No. no, we, we never we never charge readers. Uh, we have different kind of partnerships and clients who will um, pop ads and things for. But we also were really picky about ads. We won't do any of the automated networks. I tried it once, and they let you blacklist certain things. And I saw an ad for Bill O'Reilly's book in there, and I'm like, mm, nope, nope. I don't I don't care how we snuck through that blacklist, but it's not worth it. You mentioned in 2016 feeling devastated and everyone feeling that way. But in Kentucky, probably 60% just about went the other way. And probably a lot of them felt elated, not devastated. And you spent some of those years full-time and some part-time thinking about Kentucky politics. Do you understand why the majority of the state feels differently than you and I about the Trump election and associated things? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I I do try to always think about it from the other side, which sometimes upsets people that trying to wrap my head around the way that people think and respond to things who have detestable opinions somehow makes me more sympathetic to their opinions. There's a whole lot of pushback on the New York Times and, and various legacy media outlets for doing profile after profile on the thinking of the Trump voter. And I'm always fascinated by those profiles. I think that the problem with those profiles is they too often take what people say at face value and they say, oh, well, we have concerns about the economy and it's not that we're racist, but but you are, you are racist. I don't know that I buy that. I mean, I think that's one of the things in the in the stew but i think there's a lot of people who are not more racist than us that are pro trump we all have our our prejudices and some of them are more flagrant than others or or more detestable as you might say i'm someone who will try to talk to people on the other side and read what they're reading to some extent and try to understand it even though like I am very concerned for the country that if he comes back, if they get a trifecta in D.C., even without it, the appointments that he's going to make to the courts and to the to the federal bureaucracy. There's so many things to that take us down a road that aren't even policy that are bad, as well as policy things that I disagree with. But I still feel like some of us on the left make a mistake in painting with too broad of a brush what the other side thinks and how and what is motivating them. There's a lot of different things. I, I, I 100% agree with that. It's something that I talk about with my wife a lot because she knows that one of my favorite musicals of all time is a show called Avenue Q. I think it's 20 years old or close to it at this point, way predates Donald Trump and all this, but there's a song called Everybody's a Little Bit Racist and it's hilarious and it's 
100% true. And your point exactly, which is everybody has these biases. We have these biases. What we choose to do with them differs a lot. And it differs a lot by party right now. And it differs a lot within parties right now. That was not to say that all Trump voters are motivated primarily by racism. They were certainly willing to tolerate his racism or interpret things that we interpret as blatantly racist as not that he would say. To justify. Because Trump is very good at pushing the button hard without using the N-word or something like that. He gets awfully close an awful lot of the time. I mean, he goes over my lines in almost every utterance, but he leaves room for people to see him how they want to or to see him as just speaking not in a politically correct way or locker room talk or whatever. I mean, I think he's a criminal. I think he's a narcissist. I, I really am not a fan, like deeply. That's this <laughs> whole podcast. But I know that's why we're here. But I, but I really think I do understand that there are different lenses and they are now picking a MAGA speaker is enormous for the country, but it doesn't actually necessarily represent the difference between human beings on one side and the other. Largely, I think, I think that's right. I, I think, honestly, the thing that I think that he does and that the Republican Party does that racism is frequently a major part of it, but it's not all. It's not all of it. I mean, they can support Tim Scott and whatever, but I think that it's giving people permission to blame somebody else for whatever they don't like. That it, it focuses them away from feeling like their problems are their fault and there's always somebody else to blame, whether it's immigrants from Mexico or Nancy Pelosi It's never their fault. And the fact is, most people are not in great situations in this country right now. And giving them permission to blame somebody else and not apologize for their worst impulses, whether it's racism or otherwise, is comforting to people. It's nice to know that when I'm down on my luck, it's not my fault. There are big threads of it that want to promote men over women in at least a antique view of gender, the head of the household, Christianity over other religions or over no religion. It's not just race. It's all kinds of, let's get back to a simpler time when we didn't have to contend with more complicated ideas that are upsetting to us. A simpler time for white people. A simpler right? time a, for a men. Simpler time a when simpler we didn't have to worry for, about. A simpler time for, for white men. A simpler yes, t- for heterosexuals. You name it. Uh, you know, it's a simpler time for rich people. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I, I am no political philosopher. We fake it well. <laughs> I'm curious. What's the founding story for your at advocacy group? Yeah. I mean, I touched on it a little bit in March of 2020. I had my newsletter. I'd moved back to Kentucky. I had a baby the week the world shut down and thought, well, I need something else to do. It was Brian and I going back and forth about ideas. You know, it was, it was an election year and the world was turning online as we couldn't leave our, our homes. It was brainstorming and experimenting with Brian and various different strategies around different people with social media platforms, large social media platforms, whether it was, we had some friends who were TV stars, we had some celebrity drag queen friends, all people who were very progressive. We were not interested in finding people who didn't care about these things, but it's pretty clear that if you're, if you're following, I use Mark Ruffalo as an example a lot because he's, very progressive, talks about it all the time. He does a lot of free work, especially in Wisconsin, where we do a lot of work. But if you're following Mark Ruffalo, some people are following him because of his progressive values and his politics. A lot of people follow him because he's the Incredible Hulk and, and they get annoyed. And so you see he's got all these followers 
but he's not moving all of them. And when Brian was talking, he was moving his followers. When Jojo from Jers puts out a message, her followers take things to heart. And so we decided to really move into this space of how can we work with people who with large platforms who have made themselves authorities on these values and on democratic politics to influence the narrative and to inspire meaningful action beyond social media. And so fast forward to this year, we have over 200 social media accounts, 70 million in audience combined. They're getting a hundred million views per day, uh, about 12 million engagements and they're controlling the narrative when they are together on a narrative. They're able to dictate the way that people are, are talking about things, viewing things in a way that we really haven't seen since like Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow had monopolies on the news apparatus. A cool thing about it that makes me feel good about it, because you use a term like control the narrative, it sounds suspect, right? But like all of these people feel these things in their bones. Nobody ever says anything in collaboration with us that they do not feel passionate about. And if they did, their followers would sniff it out in a heartbeat. Authenticity is is key. I, I think I, I said that when I left DC at the end of 2009 and then came back to politics, though not DC, in 2017, the, the media had fractured tremendously. Getting a, a spot on a cable news show didn't influence the narrative in the way that it did just a few years earlier. And getting a news article in the new paper, well, nobody reads the paper anymore. Eight, 8% of the American public gets their news from newspapers now. But 80% bought something in 2022 that they saw advertised by a social media influencer. And that's not 80% of Gen Z and millennials, that's 80% of the American public. So it really has the power to move the needle. Is Brian, what's his relationship with that advocacy? He's somebody that we've just been working with uh, from the beginning. He is a content creator. Uh, we call him a partner. He's a little bit our consigliere, I guess but somebody who we work with very closely and a close friend. He has a podcast. What all are his vehicles for reaching people? All of them. He's also, the, he's the most diversified person that we work with. So his flagship is his YouTube channel, which has two and a quarter million followers. He's on TikTok, Instagram, threads, Facebook, he has his podcast. Did I leave that one? X. Oh, we call it Twitter still. <laughs> We're old school. Yes, Twitter, of course. He's got a, a very active Twitter account. I think he's got six or seven figures of followers on, on every one. Do you think he is preaching to the choir and only reaching already converted? Or do you think he's, I mean, you said he was moving people, but do you think he's moving people out of another camp or undecided people? Or what do you know there? I'm so happy that you said preaching to the choir because it's a term that we talk about a lot and it has a negative connotation and it shouldn't. And that gets me back to the point of having clear, concise, repeatable messaging is we very specifically preach to the choir and the choir sings. We only use our powers for good, but it's what Fox News has done so nefariously and so effectively for 20 years is they arm their viewers with tools to go hammer their friends and neighbors. We call it our organic army of micro-influencers, where when we mobilize around an idea, we stay consistent. We want to make sure all of our content creators are speaking in their own voice authentically, but we want to be sure that, that those messages are consistent. Because what we're able to do is... We think about digital organizing, it's a lot of fundraising and it's a lot of memes. It's very good at firing people up. When we work with our content creators, it's very good at inspiring action and all the objectives that campaigns have that content creators are really good at. When it comes to winning hearts and minds, you think about 
going door to door. It's relational organizing. And so what we're doing by preaching to the choir, creating this organic army of micro-influencers that exists beyond social media is we're taking digital and at scale, turning it into relational organizing. Who else are among your content creators? That is a great question. Some of the ones who we love to work with, uh, we work with the, the Conscious Lee, we work with Jojo from Jers, uh, Tizzy Ent, we work with Brooklyn Dad, we work with Kez.io, we work on all the platforms. I feel now I start to feel like it's, I'm leaving people out, like I'm thanking somebody at some kind of award speech. I, I love these, these people too. Let me ask you one thing about them while you, if you can add as you wish, but I am a pretty close follower of politics, but I do it the way I did it when I was a kid, which is I read the newspaper and various other things, of course. But You're the one. Yeah, I'm the one left. I'm 58. You listed a bunch of people who I have never heard of, someone who follows politics very closely. I've heard of Consciously because Ashwath, who you know, has a another influencer network type thing because he introduced me to this guy. And so I went and looked at his TikTok stuff. But how do you find these people and who knows them? Yeah, that's a great question. They have a combined audience of 70 million. So a lot of people know them. Is that counting overlaps? Yes, absolutely. Because we want to be getting second touches. We want that repetition. We want people hearing it. They hear it from Brian and they, they hear it and then they hear it again from Lindy Lee and they think, oh yeah, they're thinking the same thing. So sometimes the second touch is more valuable than the first touch and it, it helps with virality. I would contend that while you might not have heard of any of these people. I mean, I might recognize them, right? But. I think that you would, but I think my goal, what we really want to do it, uh, here is to make sure that if you can't, if you if you don't know any of their names, you don't know their handles, you don't recognize their faces, and I tell you some things that they've said, you'll know those things. That's really the goal. Is, is Try me. To... Like, what's an example? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, What are we working on right now? Actually, oh, you know, man, my I'm... nightmare is someone interviewing me about stuff that I allegedly know. Like, well, you interviewed this person back at episode 537, what did they say? And I, and drawing a total blank. That's my nightmare. That's why I never let, hardly ever let anyone interview me about. Uh, I'll, gi I'll give you an example. In February, we really pounded this. The Wisconsin Supreme Court race and the election of Judge Janet is the most important race you've never heard of. I've heard of it, and that got repeated and repeated and repeated in legacy media, in and throughout Wisconsin. And then we were like, well, everybody's heard it now. And we're, we're going to say it's the most important election of 2023. And we pounded it and pounded it and pounded it. And nobody was saying the most important race you've ever heard of anymore. It all shifted. And of course, they had record turnout. I can't remember the last time anybody on either side won a race in Wisconsin by double digits. So... Um, and then they, wanted, then they wanted to impeach this person. Yes. I, well, and we did a campaign around that too, to expose the unconstitutionality and the real lack of regard for the basic functions of government around that. And we knew that we had to pick off two Republicans in the legislature and we did a mobilization. And the next day, one of them said they were no longer going to back impeachment and took about two more weeks, I think, for the second one to come out. And then the speaker had to say, we're going to see how she does. Like he had any choice. He didn't have the votes anymore. Tell me how your company works as a company. So now I understand that you've created these relationships with these content producers that have significant audiences. Who are your clients and how does a campaign work? How do you get paid? First of all, we only work with democratic campaigns. We work with a lot of nonprofits and PACs. Everybody has to be aligned with our values and our creators' values. And they come to us with specific objectives around messaging. Um, I mean, first and foremost, we consider ourselves a distributed media network. We have a larger reach amongst this network and greater effectiveness than really any 
any channel left of center. And as far as getting messaging out, making sure that it's clear, again, and repeatable and effective, that's number one. It could be growing their email list. It could be uh, signing petitions. One of the most fun campaigns of the summer that we did was around public comments on President Biden's proposed power plant emissions caps. And so we drove 60,000 public comments in favor of the strongest version of those caps before the end of the public comment period. And as soon as the public comment period closed, this was the fun part. It came out that Edison Electric, which is the industry group for the utility industry and for every community's utility company, was quietly trying to kill these caps while publicly touting their efforts to green their emissions and clean up their act. And so we did a campaign with Evergreen Action that exposed this publicly to millions of people and then asked people to tweet both at Edison Electric and their personal local utility company. And over the course of a few days, we drove 25,000 tweets at Edison Electric and their individual utility companies. Eight utility companies then came out, said they were supporting Biden's emissions proposal, distanced themselves from Edison Electric and condemned them for what they did. Then Edison Electric had to come out and dispute the noise on social media, and they distanced themselves from their own position. It was so much fun. We do things like that, public pressure. We can do fundraising. We're doing a campaign right now to bring uh, volunteers, phone bankers from around the country in support of Governor Bashir. This is for an IE. I should say we are not affiliated with the Bashir campaign directly. When we talk to campaigns, and they're still in brand world, everybody understands the, the value of influencer marketing. We're always a little bit slower in politics and nonprofits to adapt. I shouldn't say that about my prospective clients, but um, we're still wrapping our heads around how to incorporate that in political world and nonprofits. And what I try to encourage people to do is to not think of influencer advocacy and creators as a separate bucket, but to think of all the different goals of a campaign, whether it's field, fundraising, communications, certainly communications. Can we use content creators to advance our, our objectives in those fields? And really, honestly, almost always the answer is yes, in a big way. Uh, President Biden's approval rating in one poll I read today was 37%, which is ridiculously low for the good job he's doing. How much would it cost me to employ you guys to raise that to 42? <laughs> <laughs> that is an interesting objective. We do have a relationship with the White House, but not a paid relationship. Yeah, that's a good question. A five-point nationwide bump is significant and not something we've been specifically asked. I cannot give you an answer for that, but I will tell you this. It would require the entire network and it would not be cheap. I am willing to pay that. I have yeah. 10 to 20 grand to put into that. <laughs> it has to be within a certain time period and happy to do it. Yeah, <laughs> this is not a five-year plan. <laughs> Obviously, something like that, there are other forces at work that might be hard to contend with. There always are. We, we anticipate that. And, and actually, I'm glad you brought that up, the other forces, because one of the things that we, we do really well is rapid response and debunking disinformation because we can mobilize so quickly. And people talk about the way that falsehoods can spread on social media, and they're right. It's awful. Truth can spread, too, when it's out there in a big way. And we can put it out there in a big way and, and arm people with the truth and then we pay our creators. All of our fees always go primarily to our creators. But again, what we really like to see is people in their networks repeating those things and furthering those goals. If I were on the other side, like I was Edison Electric or I was the Trump campaign or I was a, who's running against the governor in Kentucky? Daniel Cameron. If, if I were Cameron, could I find a similar outfit to yours on the other side? There's a whole lot of influencers on the other side. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they got they got the an early start on this, and they spread a lot of disinformation. I don't have to sugarcoat the way I talk about Republicans. They aren't guided by the same principles as we are. Right, but they but they exist. You could go hire a firm to do the so same sure. thing. Yeah. There's also one firm which I shouldn't name. Yeah, just name it. <laughs> uh, oh gosh, I don't want to get in trouble. I, I I will tell you that there are several great companies doing this work in different ways that work with content creators to help democratic campaigns and and the organizations trying to make the world a better place and they are guided by values. There's at least three, including us. And you don't want to mention who they are? I mean, I'll, I can go find it out, but... There are good campaigns that don't know that they're working with a company that was started by Trump staffers, like actual Trump officials. So here's what I would say. Anytime somebody is looking to hire a firm that works with content creators to make the world a better place, check out the LinkedIn bios of the people who founded the company. And if you see White House 2018, 2019, and 2020 on there, you should probably just look elsewhere. They consider themselves nonpartisan and they... they uh, I'll work with anybody. They'll work with anybody. And, you know, I'm... This is really... <laughs> I, I told you that I channel my rage into basically rage, not creativity. We're not that far removed from saying, let's make Trump officials unemployable, that they shouldn't be on TV. They shouldn't be getting hired. So, so why on job. earth would you not say, don't use this firm named Joe Smith Company. They are a bunch of Trumpists. Use me. I'm on your side. You're a communication strategist. I don't, because I don't want to embarrass uh, the people who have them on their FEC filings. Oh, of course you do. Do you want them to move? <laughs> what are you talking about? I want them you to want win. Them to, do you want, then they should move to you and use you instead. They should not be paying these people, right? I will tell you on background. All right. And they have some really sleek materials and they pay very well because they're working with all sorts of different well-funded organizations. Do you have an exclusive relationship in general with your content no. creators? No. Once you have a 2 million followers, you can get paid for relationships that you have who with people who want to move opinion, if you are comfortable with it. All of our content creators, we have one who uh, was interviewed by Time, this is Tizzy Ant, who said, my soul is not for sale. And those are the people that we work with. So I don't ever have to worry about. But they could also, I'm our, just saying, uh, they could also find another firm and decide that they're comfortable. Oh, we want and, them to. Yeah. We, we want them to. And, and we, we want them to, to make a living doing this work. We love our approach. We love the way that we work with campaigns. We think it's super effective. We love having this network of creators. We want them to prosper. Our network goes beyond this transactional payment relationship. We have a lot of people in our network. We've never paid. We don't promise them that. But we also have people who will come to us and say, look, I had a call last night with one of the creators who said, I, I, it would be really helpful if I could quit my job. I need to make this much more per month. And I said, well, I think in 2024, we might be able to get you there. Let's look at some other avenues for you to, as a creator, make some more money. We also have people with this company that is nonpartisan. They get a lot of clients who are trying to whitewash or greenwash a kind of insidious objective. And so they will go to the content creators, offer them a lot of money to put out that message. And then those creators come to me and say, is this legit? And so I help them research it and vet those job offers. When they're working for a good organization, I wish that they that organization would stop, but put that message out there and take the money. But every time I've said to any of them, this is devious, manipulative, secretly right wing, every single time they turn down that money. I would imagine if you have 16 content creators and they have substantial audiences that don't overlap, that they could help each other out. Does that go on? Like they could 
bring their audience to another content creator's audience. I'm a content creator. I, why don't you also look at this other person on TikTok? I think they're great. Does that go on? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a big, big part of the growth of a lot of these people. It's one of the things that we're doing as far as establishing community around our network is so that they can help each other grow. They're all in DM rooms. They all amplify each other's posts. We're launching an app for the content creators next month, actually, that'll allow them to have a, a digital home that spans the various networks so that the Instagram people can see the Twitter people and communicate with them and the TikTok people and all that. There's also one of our, our partners is called Pocket Cast News that launched. And their whole objective is to bring people in to disseminate news from a progressive or with their progressive perspective by bringing the TikTok people and the really strong TikTok people to the Instagram people. And everybody's kind of helping each other grow in the process. And it was a little bit difficult for me to wrap my head around their model. It seems to be really successful and is, is helping a lot of people grow, a lot of good people, a lot of good voices. I feel like political scientists and journalists, even political consultants that follow politics closely don't get about the importance of things like this going on, this change that you referred to about the way communications is different since 2016. Do you think politics is different because of like the power of a small number of content creators in this space? I mean, it used to be that you would think about party organizations and candidates and messages coming out of them or out of the big newspapers, you know, don't get in a fight with someone who buys ink by the barrel. How do you understand the way politics is conducted now through this lens that you're part of growing? I think that politics changes in response to the world changing and then is very reluctant to change. And then some campaign comes along and proves it beyond a reasonable doubt. And then everybody goes along with it until the world changes again. You know, if you look at 1960 was the first big presidential election where TV was the driving force, right? And TV was not new at that point. People had been there for over a decade. People had been glued to their TVs. And only when Kennedy and Nixon proved this is where the elections won, we're going to put on makeup and that could be a game changer, uh, did all of politics shift around it. And you look at 2008, people had been on email for how long by that point? Longer than 10 years. It's possible that TV being used by Kennedy, him looking better in debate, because people who saw, who heard it on the radio, people who heard it on the radio like Nixon, people saw it on TV like Kennedy. And so different results. And maybe the Trump election might have gone differently if he hadn't figured out how to do some things with Twitter and Facebook and so on. That'd be hard to measure. You could make the argument that as this, these mediums change, you're getting different results and we're getting more and more polarized. Can you defend the way that things are going right now? Do you think it could be leading to better results or do you think it's leading to worse results? The way that things are going right now, social media as a whole, in my view, has had a net negative impact on the country on politics on honestly most things and it's not going anywhere and so to me the question is if it's that powerful if it can change countries and change the world and change lives how do we use it as a force for good or how can we shift the boundaries how do we use it as a force for good how do you know it's been that impactful like I talked recently to a UCLA professor of political science, and I seem to remember that as an aside in that conversation, she referred to some studies of social media in politics, not by, done by her, which seemed to indicate there wasn't a measurable impact. 
in partisan direction of social media. I mean, you have seem to have some compelling examples of like, we changed the dialogue in this specific case by throwing influencers at it, right? And getting people to talk differently. How can you tell? Obviously it's prevalent. Obviously a lot of people are getting their news or sharing things this way, and that's gotta have some impact. But how do we know it's like in a presidential election, say making a difference, moving the needle or whatever? It was less than three years ago that a fella engineered a violent insurrection that breached the Capitol against the United States of America using his Twitter account. And it was so obviously that, that you can line up his tweets with the way that mob was responding. The minute by minute, he puts out a tweet, they change course. I think that that shows you the power of... Um, He's that, a mega influencer. He is in a, a, in a lot of ways. He's a mega, mega influencer. He definitely is. Yeah, I mean, I think um, as far as when I say a net negative, that's more than just a partisan take. I think that that it's done a lot of damage. It's it's dumbed down an already not too intelligent discourse at times. It's forced uh, information. I was listening the other day, they were making a really clear distinction between disinformation and misinformation, that disinformation denotes a negative intent and misinformation is shared with the intent of sharing legitimate information, but being wrong. And that is happening all the time. And to the point where we have alternative facts and have for seven years now, we say that the truth doesn't matter. And I, I think that the, the reason for that is, is social media, that when people are able to put out a lie and what determines its power is, is how many people it can grab, not not how much truth is in it or how much it can masquerade as the truth. And once it's out there, the damage is done. And social media has, has enabled that. It's not a new concept, but social media has taken that concept and, and put it on steroids. And so we know from where, where we sit, we say, well, that's not going anywhere. You know, the, in fact, it's getting worse, right? Elon Musk now owns Twitter. And so we say, okay, this is here. It's here to stay. How do we utilize that power for truth and progress and combat the disinformation and right-wing shift. Oh, that, that makes all kinds of sense. What would you like people to know about your company that they might not find out otherwise? The biggest misconception around this work is that an influencer is a glamorous job or probably not even job, a, a glamorous thing to be, that it's easy, uh, that it doesn't take intellect, and that people are, are driven by vapid pursuits. And I think what I've learned, and this has been a journey for me, is, is the people who we work with, you know, we're not working with Kardashians. We're working with some of the most thoughtful, hardworking, intelligent, driven people that I know who are just desperate to make the world a better place for them, for their kids, for our kids. And they've built platforms around that. And that those platforms, when you work with them in conjunction, have an unrivaled power to achieve those goals. That's something I'm convinced of over and over again as we do this work, that this is the, the most powerful messaging apparatus on the left, bar none. How's the company doing? Great. We're growing. Our network is growing every day. We are really proud that while a lot of our work is, is nonprofit, we've gotten to work with some really great organizations. We're also in the most important races of 2023. We've gotten to work in a very big way in Wisconsin. We're working in Kentucky. We're working in Virginia, Pennsylvania. I sleep really well at night. <laughs> 
that this is that this is my job that we can really live by our values it seems like a fun place to be it's in a place that can grow too it seems like it has a lot of potential does that feel that way it has to because we as a movement have barely scratched the surface on utilizing the power of of this work we have the the biggest most effective megaphones in the country and to be honest right now we're not using them they use them they're super effective but like i said getting getting folks on the same page uniting around messages so that they're repeatable and clear and consistent and creating that organic army of micro influencers uh, see i'm doing it i'm repeating re- repeating my three points now that's where the power is to move move a country and change the world i can imagine if you had 20 campaigns and 16 influencers, you don't have too many campaigns for your influencers. Like they can each, you could, they could each do half of them over the course of time. But it seems like if you wanted to work for a thousand campaigns, you don't have enough influencers. And if you got a thousand influencers, you don't have enough campaigns at the moment. If two feet are on two different ladders, how do you climb up and what is the balance you need of influencers to clients? You're really describing some of the early growing pains that I was struggling with of not wanting to bring on too many people and, and not have anything for them to do. And the, the fear of not being able to adequately service our, our clients because we, weren't, we didn't have enough people. I wish I'd thought of the two, ladder, two feet on two different ladders metaphor. That was really good. It was a struggle early on, and we have grown to a point where, at the moment, those things are growing really nicely in conjunction. We're also getting to know our content creators a lot better and being able to lean into their strengths and where they're going to have the most effective reach. And then the other thing is really this community that we're building around them. I no longer worry about bringing in people and having a lull. Let's say the week after Christmas, all the nonprofits want to make money, but politics is dead. The week before Christmas, everything's on on hold, right? And so what are we going to do that week? It doesn't matter because we we have a community now and and they they help each other. We provide them resources. And so there's no longer... Uh, a chicken and egg issue of our network growing too big. And, and what we've seen is just, I think we, we went to Netroots Nation in July with a network of 58 million. And now we're, we're pushing 75 in just a few months. So as long as they have the values that match ours and our community, as long as that's the work that they do, then they're welcome to join us. Is there like an influencer that you really wish you could add if Lionel Messi were political in the U S like I guarantee you he has more than 70 million followers. Who would you love to add? That's progressive political and has a big following. Matt Bernstein is an Instagram creator who is queer and really outspoken on queer issues, but also it's just like he, he can talk about, a lot of different things with a great deal of intelligence and bring nuance in a way that stays very engaging to people. He hasn't responded to my DMs yet, but that's okay. He gets inundated. He's got over a million followers on Instagram. On the other side, on the client side, the paying folks, who would you like to have? Mm. Oh boy. That's an interesting one. We, we're really lucky that we have a relationship with the White House. We got to we had to take several of our creators to the White House for a State of the Union watch party in the Roosevelt Room and got to meet Dr. Jill and the president at the end of the night, welcoming back to the White House. We are not working for the reelect at the moment. That's literally the most important thing in the world. I would obviously love to be working on that campaign. If I wanted to become an influencer at scale, what would I need to do? Um, You would need to really work your butt off 
It depends what platform, but you need to put out a lot of content to start. Certainly helps to have relationships with other content creators who have already established those big platforms who can amplify you. It's hard though, because you have nothing to offer them. Uh, in exchange, if, if you're starting from scratch, again, they're really nice people. And really, different platforms, the impact of, of one really amazing post impacts your following differently. But think of it as a volume game, something that nobody notices doesn't really affect your numbers. But one thing that can go viral can can change your life. And this is part of the work ethic part. The news cycle has never in all of human history moved this fast. And so if you're putting out content today about Mike Johnson, you should, because people need to understand what a threat he is. You're not going viral on Mike Johnson today. You're going viral on Mike Johnson yesterday. Makes sense. Of course, this isn't a live show. So the, the, the today, yesterday about Mike Johnson is not going to work. But it's, yeah. It's well, I think people will pick that up that we're a little down the road. Um, is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? I should always be ready for that question. Oh, geez. We covered a lot of stuff, huh? I don't know. I, I think that was really good. I think, yeah, we covered a lot of stuff. Got to talk about Wisconsin. I got to talk about EPA campaign. Again, that was so much fun. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty good. Okay. Well, I always learn a lot, yeah. uh, particularly when I'm talking to someone who's in the middle of a, like a new growing thing that I, that I need to learn about. And I hope other people enjoyed that as well. Anything else you want to say? No, I think this was this was such a great conversation. I'm so glad that to have had this opportunity and to get to meet and talk to you. Cool. That was Stuart. He is at atadvocacy.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.